What's poppin' everybody? Episode 25 of the Slip and Weave Podcast coming right at you. Talking about the big fight this weekend between Terrence Crawford and Kel Brook, and I'm doing a recap of some fights from the last few weeks, so let's get right into it. Because it was just what a thriller of a fight, man. Um, you know, for as long as it lasted. If you didn't get to see the fight, um, Tank Davis stopped Leo Santa Cruz in the sixth round. And the first two rounds, Leo was boxing really well and was was hitting Tank pretty clean. You know, he was throwing some nice combinations, and as the rounds wore on. You know, Tank started figuring some things out. Sometimes he would box. You know, sometimes he would come forward with his gloves high. Um, and as the round started to build, he started throwing these, you know, these hard body shots. And the more he would throw the body shots, the more Leo sort of started stay, staying in place with him. And by the fourth round, they were basically trading punches in the middle of the ring. Which I think maybe Leo got a little too comfortable doing that because he was landing. Um, if you look at the stats for the fight, Leo actually landed more punches than Tank. So I think he just got a little too tangled up in like, you know, maybe he he just got too comfortable in the pocket. He got too comfortable in the pocket trading with Tank because he knew he could hit him. And the reality is, you know, for him to beat Tank, he was going to have to fight a little bit more like he fought in the second Frampton fight where he was more of an outside, keeping his punches long combinations fighter. You know, but Tank fourth fifth round really bullied his way inside and they were trading punches and in the sixth round you know it was a brutal round leo was hitting tank with all kinds of shit and tank just was relentless with his pressure he kept coming forward he kept pressing the fight you know sometimes he would do the mayweather where he's here with the philly shell sometimes he'd be up here with the gloves high and be moving his head but he was on the attack and you know leo was game for it but when he caught leo with that uppercut in the sixth round and laid him out I was just like, holy shit, dude. I don't even remember ever seeing Leo Santa Cruz get buzzed before this fight that I can remember. I mean, I'm sure it's happened in his career, but in the many fights of his that I've seen, I don't even remember him getting buzzed. And just to see him laid out cold like that, you know, I was worried about him. You know, he's one of my favorite fighters. I've been watching him for a long time. He's a lot of fun. And, you know... Like everyone else in there, including Tank, you know, I was just hoping he was okay. It was a real display of heart and courage, like how he fought the fight. I wish he had been a little smarter maybe, but there may not have been that there against this opponent. You know what I mean? So maybe he was making do with what he had. It was crazy to see his pops get into the ring with him, get out of the wheelchair and walk up onto the apron. Very inspiring. I saw... That, you know, that Tank did a post on some social media about them and, you know, that him and his pops are the real heroes. It was great seeing the respect between these two fighters. Um, and it was, it, you know, the undercard was a little soft, but I would say overall, you know, mission accomplished on this event. 
the only thing I'll say about this fight is, you know, there was like nine or 10,000 people at this fight. And I know that people want to have crowds back. I know that I, I want it too. Everybody wants to have crowds back at the fights. It's a part of the event. It's a part of the, you know, the ambiance and the excitement and the tension. But there's a lot of promoters and commissions and fighters working really, really hard to keep this sport safe for everybody involved. And, you know, in the height of this fucking pandemic, the idea that we would have nine, ten thousand people sitting near each other for a boxing match seems ridiculous to me. I mean, I know it's as a business move, that's what you want to do. Um, but you also have to consider people's safety. And, you know, I don't, to my knowledge, people were not tested to get into the fight. I hope that they were. Um, but I, I, I'm not aware that the audience was tested. So, you know, there's a lot of variables there. And, and there's not really any other promoters doing audiences or doing audiences on that level yet. You look at the cards on DAZN. You look at the ESPN bubble. Everything that Eddie Hearn is putting together, you know, everything that Queensberry is putting together, the the Frank Warren company, you know, these are all bubble scenarios. Even the Fox, you know, PBC fights are all bubble scenarios with no audience. Um, and the reason to do that is because we want to keep the sport safe because if the sport becomes unsafe, um, these kind of events will not be allowed to go on. The states will shut them down. Or, you know, or the commissions will say that we don't sanction these fights. So we just want to make sure that we're not, this is just my opinion, but we want to make sure we're not fucking doing anything prematurely in the height of a pandemic that could endanger the sport for everybody that's trying to make money in the sport. You know, I know that the pot is a little smaller right now, but, you know, if you take up all the pot and there's nothing left for everybody else, then there's no fucking, you know what I'm saying? There's no sport. So, um... You know, I, I just hope that in the in the future, and I maybe this was more well thought through than I'm giving it credit. You know, I know all the fighters and everything were tested and they were in a bubble, but I don't know. Seems a little early to me. Um, the The other fight from that Saturday was earlier in the day was Alexander Usyk winning a unanimous decision against Derek Chisora. I fucking love this fight, man. This was a great fight. You know, Chisora really, really brought the heat particularly the first four rounds, you know, he was hitting Usyk with hard body shots. He was pushing him back. You know, he was kind of doing that Joe Frazier thing where he had both hands up, you know, in the cross arm for a little bit. And he was really making it hard for him, you know, but in the fourth or fifth round, you know, you could see Usyk kind of catch his rhythm a little bit. And he, you know, Chisora was loading up big time on everything, big swinging shots, just putting his whole weight into it. And Usyk in the fifth round just sort of, well, he started doing it in the second round, but in the fifth round it started working where he was just keeping his hands busy, you know, with soft punches and keeping his head moving and just keeping Chisora busy and kept his hands in his pocket. And he started to get a rhythm. And then as that rhythm built, he started landing the harder shots. And then, you know, by round nine or ten, it was like every round he would have Chisora or not every round, but there was multiple occasions where he would have Chisora buzzed at the end of the round and just couldn't really finish him or didn't put his foot on the gas. But, you know, the fifth round, he really took control. 
and I felt like basically outboxed him, you know, for the whole rest of the fight. Chisora was still, you know, tough as nails and, and a lot to deal with. He's just a very physical guy, very big, strong puncher. But Usyk just had too many tools. He had too many things he could go to, too many options. You know, as far as heavyweights go, his footwork is just amazing. You know, I maybe it was a, an interview with Chisora I saw, but he was like, you know, this guy's skill set is more for the cruiserweight division. And you can see it when he fights because he has a more kind of um, classical boxing style with his movement and his combinations. But heavyweight boxing is a different thing. You know, it's it's a little less active because each punch has more um, devastation. So, you know, this fight was sort of a measuring stick. Like, where is Usyk at as far as being able to fight, you know, top, top level heavyweights? You know, to me, because of who Chisora's fought, who he's beaten, who he's given a hard time to, I thought this was like Usyk is a real heavyweight. You know, maybe he's not the biggest puncher in the world, that heavyweight. If anything, he may not get a lot of knockouts at heavyweight, to be honest. But um, he definitely has the skills, the footwork, the defense. You know, he does the Loma step around where he gets to the other side and shoots the left hand. Um, and he's his he's just got the the broadest set of skills, maybe outside of Tyson Fury, but he's it, it's a similar. You know, he's more mechanical in how he goes about what he does, but the the variety of things he can go to is similar to Fury. And, um, you know, he clearly won the fight. I saw, you know, some people were saying this was close. I don't know, Chisora won. I'm not really seeing that. I don't see how he got more than four or five rounds in the fight. I definitely think Usyk won it pretty clear. And, um, you know, if they can't put together Fury and Joshua... As soon as possible. I said this on the last episode, but let's get Usyk and, and Anthony Joshua going now. Because it looks like Fury's going to get another fight, you know, in December. And it's probably not going to be Wilder or Joshua. So, you know, once Joshua has successfully defended his, I believe, his IBF belt against Kubrat Pulev, he'll be able to defend the WBO against Usyk. Um... So I'm looking forward to that fight. I think Usyk presents a unique challenge to anybody at heavyweight with his speed and his um, his foot mobility, his ability to get around the ring and change position around you and also to compute as he goes along. You know, the the first couple of rounds, he's like Lomachenko in that way where he's, he's sort of just taking in information on what you're doing and getting a look, and then it's a slow build. And by the second half of the fight, you know, generally speaking, by the fourth or fifth round, Usyk has taken over whoever he's fighting. I don't know how a fight with him and Joshua would look. You know, Joshua's so much bigger than Chisora and so much taller and longer and um, I think probably hits harder too and has some better boxing skills. So he's got the ability to be on the outside, on the back foot. I think that fight would be a very, very technical one. I don't I think the best strategy for Joshua probably would be to use his size and his physicality but then that leaves you know openings for Usyk to counterpunch so I think that matchup is a particularly interesting one and I hope they put that together as soon as possible cuz it's uh you know that's an easy one to make especially since they're both with Matchroom and DAZN and all that you know
So anyway, there was there was two other ones this past weekend, November 7th, and to be honest with you, pretty much uh, they were not that important, to be honest with you. I was going to talk about them more, but I realized, like, there's really not much to say here. Luis Ortiz got a first-round knockout against a guy named Alexander Flores. Very weird body shot where he's from the southpaw position. He stepped to the side. He shot the right hook to the body. Flores went down. You know, it looked like a hard body shot, but then when you watch the replay, the side of his forearm, when he's throwing the hook, kind of catches Flores in the side of the head, and it looks like that's what puts him out. So I don't know what the ruling on that is. I saw there was some sort of, like, the the commission. I don't remember what state it was in, but the commission was looking into um, – not foul play, but just seeing, like, why did Flores go down so quickly. But when you watch that replay, it's very obvious that the forearm catches him right in the side of the head and I think just puts him out. Maybe the body shot lands too and bothers him. But to me, it looks like the forearm is what does it. So I don't know if they changed that to a no contest or if that's still technically a knockout because he was in the act of throwing a punch. So it'll be interesting to see how that gets ruled. And then the other one was... Um, you know, kind of a sleepy fight between Devin Haney and Yuriokas Gamboa. Um, th- this was a really weird matchup. There was a- so much holding in this fight. You know, the first half of the fight, it seemed like most of the holding was Haney. The second half, it seemed like more of it was Gamboa. You know, Haney won basically every round of the fight. Maybe Gamboa won one round, two rounds. But Haney won every round. The problem is that there was so much holding and there was really... Truth be told, not that much clean offense from Haney. You know, a lot of it just came down to um, Gamboa just being in kind of a weird spot in his career. You could see his foot mobility is not what it used to be. I don't know if it's the injury or if it's age. To be honest with you, I'm more inclined to think that it's the injury because he hasn't taken a lot of punishment. You know, you could see his ability to get up off his back foot is a little more limited. And so how he used to set his shots up, bouncing around the ring and being mobile and being explosive, he just doesn't have as much of that anymore. And, you know, his hands are still pretty fast, but he can't set, he can't really get in position to set it up. So there was very little landed cleanly by Gamboa because he didn't really throw that much. You know, he had a couple of little bursts, but he he was mostly inactive in the fight. And a lot of the fight was Haney working his jab for a while and then they hold and then they break maybe Haney lands a couple of good ones and then they hold and they break and it was just 12 rounds of that you know it was really kind of a rough fight to watch I think that Haney's a very talented young fighter but he's of all of this these young lightweights like the you know Tank Ryan Garcia Tiafimo. Haney, um, to me, he's the least developed. That's just my opinion. I think Haney is the least developed out of those guys because now you see Tank's beaten an elite fighter, Leo Santa Cruz. Lopez has beaten an elite fighter, Vasily Lomachenko. You know, um, it just doesn't, it seems like Haney's just kind of one step behind. For, like, he's got all the things. He's got the hand speed. He's got the feet. He's got all of the stuff. I think he's going to be a great fighter, but just where he's at in his development 
it seems like he's just kind of one step behind those guys and maybe, you know, working on his inside game a little bit. Um, I'm not sure what he does. He's he's going to get better. You know, you have to have fights like this against kind of weird, awkward veterans that know how to survive, that know how to get through rounds and kill time. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough spot for him to be in as a 21-year-old fighting this, you know, this 38-year-old veteran that's been in there with some of the best guys in the world. You know, and is fighting defensively. It is a tough spot to be in. Um, so, you know, I, he needs to he needs to step his competition up gradually the way he's doing, and he's going to learn every time. And I think he's one of those guys too. Like the better the competition gets, the more it's going to bring out of him. So, I look forward to seeing him. I just I would hope I I wouldn't want to see them push him too quickly. You know what I mean? Because he's already he's he's fighting fringe contenders now and so the progression now as he goes up the opponents are going to be very tricky um and speaking of tricky opponents ryan garcia i i saw his fight with luke campbell was postponed because campbell tested positive for covid19 so hoping that luke campbell is healthy and all that and that they can put that fight back together as soon as possible i was actually getting ready to do a prediction on that maybe this week um so it's unfortunate um and wishing everybody that's involved in the fight health, of course. Um, the last thing I want to talk about this week is the big fight next weekend between Terrence Crawford and Kel Brook. Um, love this fight. I think that Terrence Crawford has been kind of starved for an opponent like this, like a genuine B-side, a gen someone who really brings their own thing, their own resume to the table, their own skill set, you know, Crawford is arguably the best technician in the whole game, but you go down his resume. I've said this before, but you go down his resume. You look at who's in the top, the other people in the top 10 pound for pound, and you look at Crawford. I have number four on my list. You know, it's hard to say that his resume matches up with a lot of those guys. I know the belts and the, you know, the three weight classes, and that's great. But you look at who's actually on this list of people he's fought. You know, Kel Brook is arguably his best opponent. Um, definitely his best opponent since his fight with Victor Postol. And definitely the best welterweight he's fought by far. So, I, I, you know, I see this as a pretty interesting matchup, especially since Brook has moved up to middleweight, junior middleweight. He's fought at the bigger weight classes. And so, you know, he knows what that power is like. His two losses, he's 39-2 with 27 knockouts. The two losses are to Gennady Golovkin at middleweight and to Errol Spence at welterweight. Those fights were back-to-back. Suffered a fractured fractured orbital bone in both of those fights, so that's a very difficult injury to overcome. Um, but he's won three, four fights in a row since then, which puts him in position for this fight. Crawford, um, his last fight was against Kowalewskis, I believe, and then... Prior to that, it was Amir Khan. You know, to me, especially, especially at welterweight, this fight represents a big step up for Crawford. I think it's the first fight that he's maybe in his whole career, but definitely in a while, that's like a career-defining fight. These are the kinds of opponents, the kind of rivals you need um, to, to define your legacy. You know, you need great dance partners. I think that Brooke... 
is one of the more slept on guys in the division. Those two fights that he lost, that those are two of the very best fighters in the world. And he was being competitive in both of those fights. Um, so I think that I think that Brook with his size, his versatility, you know, his hand speed, how well he moves, he's got a lot of things he can go to well. You know, obviously Crawford does everything well. He's to me probably has the best footwork in the whole game. You know, people say Lomachenko, but I think as far as you know, getting around the ring, ring generalship, being able to do it in multiple kinds of ways, I think he's the best at that. And he's also another one of those guys, you know, a lot of the elite level fighters, um, they take a few rounds to, to, to get a look. And he does that too. He takes three, four rounds to kind of get an idea of what you do, what you fall for, what feints make you flinch. And, um, and he's another one like Usyk, like Lomachenko, where it's sort of a slow build. And I think that for the first seven, eight rounds, this is going to be a very, very close fight. Um, and I think that I think Brooke is a different challenge. It's a different kind of challenge. It's a different level. There's levels to this shit. And I think that for eight and seven to eight rounds, Brooke is is really, really going to push Crawford. And then, like Crawford always does, I think he's just going to have. That one more gear that he can go up to um, that usually other people can't go up to. And I think the last four rounds of the fight, he's going to separate himself. Um, there was a, It's a weird kind of analogy, but I look at this fight almost like Calzaghe and Mikkel Kessler. It's a similar, similar kind of matchup in a sense. And I think it'll be like the first eight, nine rounds are close. Crawford pulls away at the end. Um, I think he's just, he's always got that one more thing he can go to. That's sort of what makes him a special fighter to me is the fight will be going one way and then it's going a different way now. Like he, he figures something out. He sees something, something changes in him and he's got just a different, a different level he can push himself to, a different gear he can put it into where you you no longer can keep up with him physically, mentally. You, you're not keeping up with him anymore. He is pulled away from you, and you're not catching up to him. I think that'll happen again in this fight, but that first eight rounds to get to that point is going to be more challenging than in other fights. And, and Brooke's not just going to wilt when Crawford takes it up to that next gear. He's still going to be a live dog. He's still going to be engaged. Um, so that's how I see it. I see Crawford winning in decision. I see it being a challenging fight for him. Um, but I see it being one where he solidifies, you know, why we've been putting him in the pound for pound list for many years and why he's, you know, considered one of the best guys in the world, even though relative to his peers, his resume is a little softer. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that fight. That's going to be on ESPN. Um, yeah, so that's it, guys. That's episode 25 of the Slip Away Podcast. Glad to be back with everybody, and I'll uh, catch you guys next week. Peace.